Good morning, everyone. I'm Renee. I'm the founder and executive director of Foster Source. Why don't we have our speakers go ahead and come on camera? There's Amy and Heather. Good morning, everyone. We are so thrilled to have you with us today. This class is a class we have taught since the beginning of Foster Source. <laughs> and <laughs> the reason for that is that Amy Vantine and I were foster parents together way back, way back in the day. <laughs> and we both had experiences in foster care that prompted us to form nonprofits to help other foster parents. Um, reactive attachment disorder is something that I feel like none of us knew about when we started fostering. And had we known, our experiences would have been very, very different. Um, so it is our pleasure today to welcome Amy and Heather from Rad Advocates. They'll be sharing their contact information. Um, they're very, very good at following up and helping if you need it. I'm excited for you to learn from them. Please ask questions. We're thrilled to have you guys. Thank you so much for doing this today. And yeah, I'm going to hand it over to you. Great. Thank you so much, Renee, for having us here. It is always an honor. This is one of my favorite groups to train for. Uh, part of it is because I get to see Renee's beautiful face. Uh, so yes, we're very happy to be here. I am Amy Vantine. Uh, just a quick brief history of myself. I was a foster parent. Uh, we did foster through Adams County and we ended up adopting our foster child and later found out that she had reactive attachment disorder. Um, needless to say, we found ourselves in a lot of crisis situations and we're really struggling. And uh, that, like Renee said, led me to starting Rad Advocates, uh, full disclosure, we ended up relinquishing our parental rights back to the county because we were not able to um, provide the level of services that our daughter needed safely. So that is um, pretty much how Rad Advocates began. That really um, inspired me to want to help other parents when I found out that I was not alone, that I was not an isolated case. I really felt like we needed to figure out a way that we could better support families who were raising children with reactive attachment disorder to try to continue to keep children in the home or in the family environment. Heather, you wanna introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Heather House, and we, I, my husband and I were also foster parents and adopted two children from foster care the oldest of which we found out many years later was, uh, or had read and just found Rad Advocates or found Amy when Rad Advocates was brand new and utilized her wealth of knowledge from her experiences to help us get through ours. And here I am joining the movement to make it all better. <laughs> all right, should we, Renee, is it okay we get started on the video now? You bet, go ahead. All right. Okay. So we're gonna start out just talking about what exactly is RAD. 
you know, before we go any further, we need to know what this diagnosis is and the definition and how it is developed. So reactive attachment disorder, here is uh, two definitions. And they, as you can see, they are both very um, close in description. Um, as more is being learned about developmental trauma and as that's becoming more of a, a new, uh, probably a better description of what actually reactive attachment disorder is. Reactive attachment disorder does start in the developmental years, those early childhood developmental years of a child. And it's that trauma that then causes the child to not be able to form an attachment or connection or trust. So you can read these and see um, the, the Mayo Clinic's version is where they are specifically talking about reactive attachment disorder and the Oxford Center is talking about developmental trauma. This is really where the disorder starts. There are more studies right now that are showing uh, that it is even possible in utero when the bio mother has a lot of stress hormones being released to the baby. Um, we're waiting to get hard concrete evidence on that before we include that in our slides, but we do know this for sure of how our securely attached cycle and the disrupted attachment cycle affects the development on a child's brain. So in the secure attached cycle, the baby you know, is comforted, then the baby has a need, begins to cry, whether that need is I'm hungry, I'm wet, I'm hot, I'm cold, whatever it may be. When the baby starts to cry, then usually a primary caregiver will soothe the baby and talks to the baby. This is where the baby is starting to develop trust in their caregivers. This is where the baby is learning to start to identify themselves, to have a good foundation of who they are as a person. The baby then calms when their needs are met. The baby and mother interact and the baby rests. And then this cycle goes on. This cycle happens thousands of times during the day. Oftentimes as parents, we don't even realize that the cycle is happening when we are constantly talking with our children, cooing with them, nurturing them, loving them, cuddling them, that secure attachment cycle is happening always. With the disturbed attachment cycle, what ends up happening is when the baby has that discomfort and has that need and expresses through tears, through crying, when a caregiver does not respond consistently, or responds with anger, this is where that attachment, that healthy attachment is being broken. The baby then starts to learn that my needs are not being met. I'm hungry, I'm soiled, I'm cold, and nobody is taking care of my needs. They start to not be able to develop that sense of self of who they really are because they are not, um, being taught that through a primary support person who is meeting their needs. They're not developing trust to trust that people can meet their needs. They usually quit crying at some point. They are ready to not express their needs. 
the baby then rests, and then the cycle just keeps continuing. So this is huge because now we have a child who is not forming a healthy attachment. They are learning that nobody can meet their needs and that they have to meet their needs themselves, or there's no reason to cry because their needs are not being met. Reactive attachment disorder, the primary Amy, can I just say one thing? Yes. So that that slide that was just up there, Heather, if you're doing that, can you go back? This is obviously a lot of this is from neglect. Caregiver does not respond to baby's cries. What yes. is like the overwhelming reason children are pulled into care? Neglect. neglect. But we often hear how rare reactive attachment disorder is. That can't be true. Correct. And, and the part of that is, and, and we'll get into this further in our presentation, um, it appears rare because how this disorder uh, develops relationships down the road. They, they really develop relationships built on services and goods and not connections. Um, yeah, so the neglect is that big piece when the baby's just left to cry alone. The other part is um, with anger you know, the, the physical abuse, um, you know, a big thing is, is if you have a parent who is, you know, a drug addict or something like that, and they're not hungry because the drugs are suppressing their hunger or whatever. And so they're not thinking to feed the baby, um, you know, they're, or they're angry with the baby, you're ruining our party, like this sucks or whatever. You know, we had that whole never shake a baby campaign, which is absolutely amazing. Like you never shake the baby, but we were also taught like, just put the baby down, but there is a time frame that the baby can't just sit and cry either. You know, they have a need. That's the only way children know how to express their needs is yeah. through crying. Um, they don't have a voice yet. They can't get up and walk away. They can't defend themselves. There's no way for them to communicate what they need except through tears uh, so when that primary caregiver is not meeting those needs, they are not developing trust that anybody can meet their needs. Right. Well, um, and I should say, after having said that, not every baby that was neglected has rad. And that's correct. what we'll, we'll get into later with, right. the, with that relationship. Okay. Thank you. Right. Yes. And RAD is believed to this, that um, attachment cycle that can happen between birth and three. Some people, some experts will say five, um, that that is the crucial developmental years for the brain um, developing relationships. Uh, children with RAD have a difficulty, obviously receiving love or giving love because their attachment cycle developed on a service or a good not intimacy and connection. So that feels really uncomfortable to them. They have an inability to form those relationships. Again, um, we know that all the relationships we have in our lifetime is set off of our early attachment style. Whatever your attachment style is, that is how you will form relationships. And so um, if a child never learned to receive that love early on or to develop trust in others 
or to believe that they can meet their, you know, people can meet their needs. They're not going to have loving, intimate, lasting relationships. Um, they have very egocentric motives. You know, they're distrusting of others. Uh, again, that trust piece, it's so important. We believe that somebody can meet our needs. And this is a spectrum disorder, kind of like autism or something like that. You can have kiddos who are on the severe end of the spectrum and kiddos who are on the mild. Um, the mild end of the spectrum is probably gonna be called more attachment issues. Um, the severe end of the spectrum is gonna be reactive attachment disorder. Um, the, the, and I will say an attachment issue, um, is more of a, um, they had trauma, but they were, they had a healthy attachment. So you can have a child who maybe if bio mom was an addict or something like that, but there was the best friend at the party that was constantly meeting the child's needs, the child could still have some form of attachment, the baby could, or they went to daycare during the day. You know, they're, they're getting some bits and pieces of that um, constant care, but then it's not consistent enough. Um, but those children can have an attachment, but then their trauma, let's say at two, they got removed from bio mom or something like that. That traumatic event could then start to create um, a disorder on this spectrum where it would be more of an attachment issue. Like they just don't trust that they had the foundation of connection. So it's really, it's really kind of hard to figure out where they are at on that spectrum. And that's why you do need somebody who is experienced in it to help diagnose that. It's really important to understand RAD because especially in your role as foster parents, like Renee was saying, you know, what brings a lot of these kiddos into care? Uh, go ahead, Heather, you're fine. The statistics gathered by the US government show that eight out of 10 children who are raised in an environment with trauma in their early years are gonna be affected by an attachment disorder. Now, one out of those 10 will not be able to emotionally function normally. That's a, that's a pretty big number. You know, we believe that children are resilient. And when we know that, especially in our foster care system, that eight out of the 10 children that are, that are raised in a traumatic environment, that, that could be affected. But when we know that one out of those 10 will not be able to function emotionally, you know, these are the kiddos that are um, struggling to be in the home setting. You know, they have multiple residential treatment center stays, uh, lots of placements within the foster care system. Uh, again, RAD is not rare. We believe that RAD is not, RAD is rare to the general public. It's not rare in our adoption communities or in our foster care communities. 
there was one study that talked about the same percentages of children with RAD would be the same percentages of people with red hair. So red hair is considered to be more rare, but we all know somebody with red hair. Uh, so again, the, this, this study that was done shows that 38 to 40% of children met the diagnostic criteria for RAD that were in our child welfare system. Um, or I'm sorry, that was the general population. In our child welfare system, it was 40% of the kids six to 18 years of age suffer from some sort of attachment disorder. Again, where that falls on that continuum, um, that's where an expert would need to assess yeah. that. Amy, do you remember when you first learned about RAD? Because we trained together and I didn't learn about RAD. I did not learn about RAD in my foster parent training. I learned about RAD when I was working as a mentor uh, to foster children early in my early 20s. Um, and then I also worked as a case aide for a private placement agency. And the kiddos that we knew that had RAD were these like wild, out of control kiddos that were in the juvenile detention center. They were the ones that were like attacking police officers and nobody could control them. And this was back in the early nineties. And so I always had this understanding, like it's so rare, like to see kids attack police officers and really lose control. You know, we don't really see that. Um, so when I found myself parenting a child with RAD, I when, when the therapist was telling me that's what they kept thinking it was, I was like, no, this can't be it. Um, because she presented so well out in the community, you know, she was able to function in the community, but it was in our home where the intimacy was that she really struggled and really had some pretty big behaviors that were hard to manage. Um, what made them really hard to manage was once we would get her to therapy to help with these big behaviors, nobody else would see what I was experiencing. Um, yes, and then you're the crazy parent. And then I okay. look like yeah. the crazy you're parent the crazy because parent. I'm saying, no, no, no. Like it was really, you know, really hard. It went on for hours. I couldn't control her. I couldn't help calm her down. I couldn't de-escalate yeah. her. Um, and, and then when other people would talk with her, she could tell you all the coping skills. She could tell you what she needed to do. Um, and so I didn't feel like it was rad because she wasn't showing the behaviors with anyone else. Once I started learning more about rad and digging deeper, because, you know, we do that as mama bears, mm -hmm. our children have something, you know, how you, um, you'll read every book and research until you know how you can help them best. Um, when I started really putting it together, going, well, of course it's, it's me because I'm the one providing that intimacy and that connection that she was never able to receive early yeah. on. How about, let me throw this to you real quick before we learn a little bit more. Someone says, could an older sibling be the one who developed the attachment to the baby? For example, a nine-year-old taking care of baby sister because parents are constantly involved or consistently involved in DV. Yes. So could the baby attached also, to the sibling instead? Yes. Um, but again, how well was the sibling able to meet those, that baby's needs? Was it consistently? Was it 
without anger? You know, can we expect a nine-year-old to be able to regulate themselves with a fussy crying baby when they're just trying to watch cartoons or do their own thing? So you always have to think of it that way too. Is it a healthy attachment? Um, that I would think could possibly be more of a, a trauma bond. Okay, and one other um, question before we go further, just to clarify, any child who has an attachment struggle does not necessarily have RAD. Not necessarily, not necessarily. An attachment struggle, um, Heather gives this example a lot in our training, so I'm gonna steal it. And so it's kind of like if you are in a relationship with somebody and like you're dating somebody and you find out that person's cheating on you, it's going to impact you. You're going to be sad. You're going to be broken. And then you're going to be really hesitant to get back out in that dating field. You're not going to trust as easily. You're going to be, you know, it's similar to like that. If a child has a traumatic event that they already had a foundation of, of attachment, they're not going to trust as easily. They're going to be hesitant. They're they're going to be scared. They're going to have to work through that trauma to then be able to trust easily. RAD is more where there is no attachment. They never developed that healthy attachment in that early, early years. They never learned that anybody could meet their, um, meet their needs. And so it's so ingrained in their development that their brain is hardwired differently, where an attachment issue is gonna be more of like, yeah, I I struggle with attachment and connection because I've had some trauma. Okay, now I will hush and let you teach, sorry. (laughs) The brain is developed differently. Um, Yeah, so what does RAD look like? So kind of how I was explaining, For me, I thought that I knew RAD. RAD did not look like what I thought that it would look like just based of, you know, the training that I had had working as a mentor or case aide. When I parented it, it was very different. So it's kind of important when we look at what it looks like to explain the neurological picture and how their trauma-related experiences are affecting their attachment. And But I did want to go back really quick to something, Renee, you talked about with the, like an older sibling. And it's something I've been doing some research on, and it's, and it's a term called enmeshment, which is basically explains like some cross-generational bonding. And so when an older sibling takes on the role of a parent, and that while some needs are being met, it's not the best case scenario again like amy said are they able to meet certain needs and not be angry and you know they're inexperienced and immature themselves and probably didn't have great experiences as their as a baby themselves so are they just doing a little bit better than they had you know that kind of thing so but that is a it's a newer term to me the enmeshment but i've been really doing some research about that heather your camera's not on all right, sorry. That way we can see you. <laughs> okay, yeah. so basically, children with reactive attachment disorder are in survival loop. We call it survival loop, and they're in this survival loop all day long. So they're always hyper alert 
to danger or to what's going on around them. Often we'll see kids that are exceptionally perceptive. They see everything that's going on. Often you feel kind of like they're creepily staring at you. And, and it's just because they need to see everything that's coming at them, what's going on, how to be prepared for anything. But that also means that when a nor when a when something a cue is coming to them, they don't know if it's normal or if it's a danger cue. So they're in this fight, flight, or freeze mode in order to try to take in that information and interpret it. The problem is when they cannot take in the information to make sense of the cue. So this nurturing, because they didn't have that early attachment, that doesn't feel okay to them. So that sends them into this being more alert, keeping them in the fight, flight, or freeze because they don't know what to do with it. And it's very much just this swirling cycle. I know I'm talking with my hands, so if you can't see me, I'm, you can't see my hands, but it's just that all the time cycle. And really when they're in that survival loop, a lot of times their brains cannot do things that they would normally be able to do. Um, sometimes learning is really, really tough because their brains are so hyper vigilant on what's going on around them that they're not able to retain the the information they're being taught at school or by parents or foster parents, that kind of thing. Um, symptoms of RAD in- Heather, yes. Will you go back and tap on the the sizes of the child's face? Then? Sorry, yes, thank you. That's important. <laughs> it is. So the- Yes, yes. And we talk about this all the time. I don't know where my brain is. Um, the little the little brain or the little silhouette that you see in the center of the screen is their toddler, toddler age. And that's really where their brains are stuck because they get just to a certain age and they, they can't learn anymore or they can't their, their fight, flight and freeze is making them stuck in this toddler brain. But they're usually like this middle silhouette, a little bit older by the time that we're seeing them. And so they have this physical age to where they're maybe eight or 10, maybe even a teenager, but the outer silhouette is where their experiential age. And that's how we're representing like the developmental age is their little person. Their um, physical age, chronological age would be the middle silhouette there. And then the larger one being their experiential age. And we I explain this experiential age to people as most of us don't experience the things that our children experience very early in life, which causes many areas of their brains to almost overdevelop. It's sometimes I say it's like never doing leg day at the gym, but always doing arm day. So someone's got a really, you know, really muscular upper body and these little stick legs. So our children have these experiences that have taught them things about the world that we may never know. Their bodies are of their chronological age, but inside they're interpreting everything through a toddler brain. So they're not able to understand and process everything that they've experienced. And then you're seeing the chronological age, the physical child doing and acting a certain way that doesn't seem to coincide with the age that they are. And often I will say, 
the teenager that's punching and throwing and kicking, that's a toddler temper tantrum that you see in Target at the age of three. It looks really different when they're teenagers. It looks much different when they're you know older children. And so uh, trying to keep your mind wrapped around the fact that it's just a toddler temper tantrum while there are these bigger people coming at you is a little challenging, but remembering all of these ages are swirling around inside of them. So they've got information coming at them that they may have experienced as a little person that were coming as adult experiences, but then they're still processing everything through the toddler brain and they're trying to do what's right at their chronological age. So you can see that it's quite confusing, which leaves them in that constant state of hyper arousal and puts them in the fight, flight, or freeze. Some way, whether they're going to fight about it, they're going to fly free from, you know, run from it, or they're going to freeze. It's their body's way of taking a moment to process, if they can, what's coming at them, but they aren't able to process it correctly. So looking for the symptoms in a child that's an infant or a toddler, you'll see little ones not seeking comfort or showing no response when they are comforted. And not so much like, I had a child that would fall and he fell off his bike and scraped up the entire, entire side of his face. And he never cried and he never even came to me to ask for help. And so my other children were running and coming to get me because he had fallen off his bike and he was like, whatever. Um, so normally you would think a toddler or, or a child would come to you when they need some help you know these are the major things like cuts and things like that not like they fell because we all want little johnny if he falls off the swing to like dust himself off and get back up these are more like not looking for uh, comfort when there's a major problem um, as infants or small toddlers failure to reach out when they're picked up or hold on i know my sec my youngest child did not grip like she would not squeeze her legs around me when i was holding her when she was on my hip she just was like this rag doll often they're closely watching others and not so engaged in their social interactions and that is again the looking for the the cues that are coming at them and how to interpret them it's hard to always be watching what's coming at you and being engaged in what's going on. We as parents do a little bit better job of multitasking, but as children, that's not something that they're able to do. You can imagine if they want to always know what's going on around them. Playing peekaboo, covering their eyes is definitely not something they want to have happen to them because then they can't see what's going on. Those kind of interactive games really um, limit their ability to perceive the information, the stimuli that's coming into them, into their heads. Kind of the failing to ask for support or assistance goes up with the seeking comfort or showing, you know, no comfort when, or showing no response when they are comforted. They've, they've learned early on to take care of themselves, to depend on themselves, that their brains feel like they're the only ones that can take care of themselves. So it's a foreign concept to ask for support or assistance. And a failure to smile, you can kind of think about when you're holding a baby and you smile and the baby smiles back at you. If that never happened, they have a very apathetic feeling. Um, facial expressions are not very engaging. So smiling isn't something they're really used to doing. 
and it isn't a cue to them like when I smile at a child and they smile back it's because they're feeling like oh this person smiled at me I'm feeling you know that's a happy thought they're not used to seeing that or feeling that so they don't do a lot of that um, often you might find this unexplained withdrawal fear sadness ir irritability in things that you would not really think that that would be the feelings you would have for that situation or maybe the child will do something with one adult but absolutely have this overwhelming fear to do it with another you know with another adult i had my son would go to a friend's house over the summer a friend of mine was a teacher and she tutored him and he would do really really well with her and she was so excited one day and she said let's show your mom what you've done how well you can do this and he it was sight words or something and he said like the first two and he messed up on the third one and he totally panicked totally withdrew totally lost his marbles because he made a mistake and she looked at me like he's never done that with me before and it was like just because i was there i was the mom it was okay to have this feeling when it wasn't the mother figure that was in his life right there to um you know be near him and so i think my perception is he probably got in trouble if he did something wrong with his um, biological family so he felt if he did something wrong in our family that he was going to get in trouble it's, i mean it's my own mom's perspective but that's kind of the 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 scenario of not really the fear and the sadness they don't match up with the situation and often you'll just see little ones with just this sad listless appearance very blank faces sometimes very cold stares um they just don't have a lot of expression they're not animated and having this back and forth expression with others now when you are a baby like that and you grow up your symptoms look different but you can kind of see where those symptoms is as a baby are being re recreated in these older children with these kind of symptoms or behaviors so being destructive to themselves or to their things or to other people's things there's not a lot of self-worth we this baby didn't learn that they were valuable so we're going to destroy ourselves or our things and then also not take care of other people's things because there isn't that connection of someone having value in something else often there's maladaptive behaviors. It could be rocking, it could be um, so, like biting their banging. nails. Yeah, banging their heads, biting their nails excessively, picking their skin, really odd or just behaviors that you'll notice they start doing if they're feeling triggered or feeling any kinds of triggering connections. Often they're predatory with animals or younger children. They have this predatory behavior. With the younger children, it's usually because they can have a feeling of power. So they're older than these younger children. They can kind of control them and it gives them a sense of power. The same with animals. You can kind of control an animal and it gives them this feeling of being in control and having some power. Often, raging over the word no and or a correction i remember like okay don't tell him no say yes after you 
put away your dishes or whatever. And it was still, it was no in nature. And I would have this huge explosion and I'm thinking, I said it was okay after you did this, but they don't have that whole concept of doing something to earn something. When he was younger, it then became a goods and services type of situation, but that was a little bit later. But the rages will be oh, much grander than a temper tantrum, like um, not stomping off and being upset or grumbling and mumbling. It will be this full-blown rage over something like, no, you can't pick up your brother's whatever, you know, something just very simple, sim simple. usually um, stealing or lying and in chronic nature. We will have video of our son doing something and I will show him and he will still tell me, no, it's not him doing it. And all in a, in a way to kind of control things. And most of these things in these behaviors and symptoms you'll notice have a common control theme. So lying about things, stealing, often doing it to not have the attention on them, although it is drawing attention to them, it seems very convoluted. Negative attention is better than no attention, but then when you get attention, we have to act crazy about it. Uh, very, you can see just in these that you will feel like a very crazy parent when you're parenting this because it's kind of no, no rhyme or reason. Or impulse control, which is often the first sign that people, parents, foster parents, any caregiver see, and that almost always starts down the road. We'll talk about commonly misdiagnosed some things that they're um, can, things that children are diagnosed with that would be maybe common, but it's not really rad, but ADHD is one of them. So these poor impulse control is always the ADHD angle that most early, early on um, caregivers find their children being diagnosed with running away. That's pretty self-explanatory, but running away and frequently running away. Uh, accusations of abuse. They sometimes will learn if they see that that accusation of something got their caregiver in trouble or caused problems. It was a way to control a situation and often that will just start a cycle of grander accusations in order to get out of the home and it's the disorder finding calm more calm not being in an environment that is loving and nurturing so if it's if the disorder has figured out how to stop feeling triggered and stop feeling loved and nurtured then it will continue to do those do those behaviors or make those accusations in order to get out of a situation that just doesn't feel good. Often disjointed relationships, consistently having just a off perception of relationships. My example in that is my son, everybody was my best friend and everybody was his friend, but he never knew anyone's name. And so it'd be my best friend this, my best friend that, my best friend at school, but did not know that person's name. And I thought, how can they be your best friend? We know that there's a relational component to having a best friend or to having any friends, and you usually know their name, but everybody just was friends. And if they don't have a foundation of building any kind of relationship, 
then they don't know how to build relationships. There's nothing been taught to them, no feelings behind those relationships to understand the varying degrees of relationships that you can be in. Often preoccupation with firing, gore, guns, violent media, but not always. And I find this stuff, these behaviors come when they're older and exposed to more things, video games and older children. So the little ones, you know, the young older children aren't as preoccupied. I, I've not, I've seen, they're not as preoccupied with these things unless that's been an environment that they've been raised in. And the risky behaviors of violence, sex, drugs, alcohol, obviously if they've known that, if that's been a part of their lives, it's something that they gravitate to, towards more often. I've also had several kids tell me that's the way they feel. Like that's the only thing they can do to cause them to have feelings and to feel something, which often you'll notice anyone who struggles with cutting, they do that because, and they'll say, because I could finally feel something and it's, they're so numb inside that it takes some very risky behavior, some big behaviors to feel something that we would naturally just feel without hurting ourselves. So some of the symptoms and behaviors of RAD and how they vary between a professional's experience and us as the caregiver or parent. So a professional, it's their job to build a trusting relationship with their um, client. So when you take your child with RAD to a therapist, it appears that that therapist easily can easily build this trusting relationship and they it forms quickly and it it feels like it's very trusting what we notice as caregivers is we are seeing the child repeatedly forming these superficial relationships with a means to an end often in the services or goods um, if i have a relationship with my therapist when I'm in a residential treatment center and I do what they ask me to do, I'm going to possibly get a reward. And so I'm going to tell them what they want to hear because I want to move to the next level or I want to get to go out to an extra recess. You can even see how that would be in a school environment because we have to have these rules in the classroom. And typically if a child is struggling, we try to redirect them, give them a reward if they can do something and do it well or do the right thing. So you can see where as a professional, you think you they've got it, but as the parent, you're seeing this happen over and over again. Uh, so many times we hear professionals say, oh, they're really good advocates for themselves. They know what they need. They know what their their, their problem is. What we see as the parent or the caregiver is the child telling each person what they want to hear. I was working with an older child and he kept saying, oh, I need drug and alcohol rehab. I need drug rehab. I need to go to, you know, that kind of therapy because it was easier to treat his marijuana problem, his drug problem than it was to deal with some of the deeper issues that he had. And he knew if he said that people thought he was amazing that he was identifying the problem. I mean, what's the first step in getting healthy? accepting you know not being in denial accepting what your problem is so it appears that they know what they need and then these extremely convincing stories 
often, so as parents, we're seeing stories that will evoke sympathy to get what they want, often in multiple placements or maybe residential facility, treatment facilities, and then a child coming back to a home, they will learn stories from other people. They will be able to share those stories and evoke sympathy, which is a way to control the situation. And then they get really, really good at telling these stories. Sometimes they're not full stories. Sometimes some of these things may have happened to the child, but then they learn some other additional information that they can put with this story to make it more convincing. They may tell their teacher that their mom does not feed them, that mom doesn't you know, give them breakfast or doesn't send them a lunch when she is indeed sending them a lunch for, you know, to school. And we had one mom talk about their child would literally, she just stayed at school after she dropped him off and he would just walk past the trash on the way to school and into the you know, campus and throw away his trash bag in the trash so that he could be given treats and snacks from his teacher and extra stuff from the lunchroom. It gave him extra attention and everybody felt so sorry for him. Or they might tear up like tennis shoes so that somebody will give them new tennis shoes when you might not have known that they were needing these tennis shoes or maybe they want to play a sport and they need something for it. And instead of just asking their parent or caregiver, they'll come up with some very convincing extreme stories so that someone else will provide that for them. Because as the parent or caregiver, if we provide it, it's loving and nurturing. And that is frightening to the disorder. That was my situation uh, with my daughter. She could not handle food from me. If I packed her lunch and would send it to her at school, she couldn't receive it because it was an act of nurturing and love. You know, at the time I'm putting love notes and stuff in the lunchbox, how proud I am, et cetera, like that. Um, it, it was too overwhelming for her to receive that, that she would rather eat out of the trash. Um, again, that was her survival skill that she learned early on to meet her own needs, that that felt more comfortable to her than to receive something that I made for her. Right. Um, and then it doesn't look well. It doesn't look well if you have a child eating out of the trash and then <laughs> reporting that, that they're not being fed. Often when we as parents try to explain what's happening to a professional, we will give all these examples and you you really in the beginning just think that this person's eventually going to see it so this next slide this you might be familiar with it but this person is trying to convince it another person that that this dog this frog has this song and dance routine and we would even as parents go through like this is the action that happened and he does this and that and then the child comes in and it's vastly different. So this is just a little kind of um, humorous clip on how it can sometimes feel to be a parent of a child with reactive attachment disorder.
Michigan rye. Everybody likes the Michigan rye. Every name and chain and root. Stomp, rump, pump the Michigan. Jump, pump, pump the Michigan rye. slides oh is that not oh so oh we have to go all the way through sorry technology is not yeah let's um get rid of that <laughs> that background heaven forbid sorry i don't know how to make it stop okay there we go sorry about that so after that, I know for our family, my child was the singing and dancing out in public and totally solemn and disgruntled at home. And it's very, as he got older, it was very typical teenager behavior, you know, the sulking and the whatever, but to a completely different level for completely different purposes. But you'll, you might even see children if they're fair extreme or raging where you're having this full-blown rage and you call 911 you call your crisis unit and as soon as they arrive or as soon as they hear that you've made that call that's like a switch is flipped and they're instantaneously no longer raging and you're like uh it, you know and you're trying to prove that you're not crazy that this was really just happening in your home so many of us then end up with cameras in our home so that we have proof because we look legitimately insane that it is our problem we are the you know the bad guy so looking at how does rad affect the rest of the family we like to say rad is a family disorder children are diagnosed with it but it affects the entire family you can have uh, secondary trauma and uh, ptsd so Often parents are diagnosed with secondary trauma when it's more PTSD and how to understand the difference. When you have someone with secondary trauma, they've been exposed to people that have been traumatized and the, the description of the events and what the survivor went through, they're traumatized by hearing those things and by learning of those things. But PTSD, is when you've been exposed to those traumatic events, chronically exposed to unsafe behaviors or environments, uh, threats to your personal, to your personal, mental, physical, spiritual, or emotional well-being, and that's to me one of the things that I didn't know as a even realized as a parent that I have the right to have mental, spiritual, and emotional well-being, not just physical, and often we 
it's easy to think, yes, you can tell when a person is in an emotionally domestic, emotionally violent domestic relationship or a physically violent domestic relationship, but you, we don't always understand the spiritual or emotional or um, the spiritual part of it and the emotional, how that all affects all of it. And, you, and when you're dealing with a child who has a disorder, who has a mental illness and is dysregulated, those environments are changing all the time. We usually think PTSD in a veteran from the war. Sorry, hold I'll on. Take over. <laughs> so we think about PTSD with our war veterans, and you know from what they've experienced. And a lot of our kiddos in the foster care system will have a PTSD diagnosis. Where this transfers over to family is with them exhibiting their PTSD and how their trauma presents. So for a child with RAD, their trauma presents in a family environment can be very violent, very aggressive because it's a nurturing environment that they are not used to. Once they um, get put into that loving, nurturing environment, they react. They're reacting out of survival and out of fear. They can have some pretty aggressive behaviors. Those aggressive behaviors then become directed at the immediate family members, which then causes those family members to potentially have PTSD themselves. So uh, this slide was brought up because I remember in my foster parent training, learning about secondary trauma and being very alert to how I was feeling emotionally, right? Because we can't help kids from hard places until we know that we have a good foundation and we're looking at our own trauma. And a lot of it was secondary. Through my experience with my child, I thought a lot of it was secondary trauma. She had gone through a lot of horrific events that children shouldn't have to go through. And so I really thought I was dealing with secondary trauma when I started my own therapy, um, we really started realizing that what I was dealing with was actually PTSD uh, because it was her reaction, her trauma, her acting out due to her, her trauma was causing me direct trauma on my person, on my own self, her violent behaviors towards me. Her violent acting out towards me was her way of saying, get away. I can't handle this intimacy. I can't handle this relationship. It was unfamiliar to her. So therefore she was pushing at me reactive, which then was causing me to, fear, to feel fearful um, for my own self. And, and it becomes PTSD. So we really want to educate on that if there is a fine line when parenting a child with reactive attachment disorder of being able to look at what is PTSD trauma, what is secondary trauma, but regardless, uh, we recommend that you be working with a professional through that. Thank you. Amy. Mm -hmm. So talking about then the risks that the family unit is experiencing or could experience social isolation. Ironically, this is something that I knew ha was happening in our own family. 
my husband put it into perfect words and we are 12 and a half years into having a child with rad just the other weekend he said what was that guy's name i can never remember names and i said i know i have a hard time too and i don't know why and he said i think it's because it's never important i don't need to know their names now because as soon as they get to know our family they're not going to stick around and i thought that's exactly it's like was exactly it for our family in the beginning, it looks so normal and people are, you know, enjoying themselves being our friends. And then the family life just kind of gets a little overwhelming and you have to parent differently when you have a child from a tough place, when they have a disorder. And so sometimes you look really mean and, or you look like you treat your, your children differently and you might favor one over the other my child was not physically violent all the time there was one or two situations but the manipulation the triangulation the gaslighting the mental stuff that went on in our home made it that no one could see that it was happening and then i was the enforcer so i looked like a really mean person but then was nicer to the other children when children with rad need certain boundaries and and safety things in their lives to feel safe and calm, which don't look like normal safety things to neurotypical people, to loving, nurturing parents. My child needed to be treated like from a distance. I needed to speak to him like he wasn't my child. He was just some kid off the street in a nice manner. But I was cordial and I provided a roof over his head, but I wasn't loving and nurturing because that triggered him. So it looked like I was very cold and mean because I would be loving and nurturing to the other children in my home. And then I was cold to him. And so again, people just don't want to be around that. And you start to find yourself like no one comes over. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on in your house and sometimes they can't come over because your house is trashed or destroyed. And you just, eventually this just creeps in. You'll find safety risks to everyone in the home. So, you may have a child who only lashes out at a parent. So in our heads, we think the parent is being abused, which you are being, the parent is being abused, but there are things that are happening to the other children in the home. They're feeling unsafe because the person that they have a relationship with, their mom or dad is being abused. And so they are feeling like they can't fix it. They can't help you. They're being exposed to this and it is affecting them. We have, uh, there's a term called glass child and it, it is a pretty common term with any child who is in a family with a child with special needs. And it came, really became more of a common phrase in the um, ASD within the autism spectrum disorder community. Because when you have a child with autism that has greater needs, the other children are kind of looked through like they're doing okay so they're good so it's kind of like looking through glass you see them but you don't necessarily see everything that they need in my family i had one child who was what i call my perfect glass child he was always got along always did what was asked never caused any grief didn't have an opinion about things so it was easy i was like oh he is my easy child not realizing that what he was sacrificing and, and what risks he was at because he wasn't becoming his own person and he was feeling all these feelings but didn't want to share them because he didn't want to cause more stress 
Then there's also the risk of false allegations and or criminal charges. If a child is feeling unsafe and they're feeling the need to control things or they're needing to get out of the home, they may turn to false allegations in order for them to be removed from the home. Sometimes those come with criminal charges. Um, never is it fun. Never do you want that to be something that happens to your family, but it is something that can happen and it's important to be prepared and protecting yourself. Often we have one parent that quits their job. So there's, you know, to take care of the child at home that's, we're getting phone calls all the time from school. You need to come pick them up. They're being suspended. Maybe they can't even function in school anymore. So we have a loss of income because a parent has had to quit their job. As they get older, I say as they get older, I mean, we've had little children be involved with the juvenile justice system. And I was even told that the professionals that we were working with had done everything they could for us. And the only thing they could do is we needed to have charges pressed against our child so that the juvenile justice system would get involved. It, it's not a natural feeling to have to have charges pressed against your child, but getting involvement is often what happens, whether you bring in the involvement because it's your last resort or there's some criminal activity that the child is involved in, Risk behavior, risky behaviors can lead to being involved with the juvenile justice system. Then having DHS involvement uh, over the false allegations. Amy, I remember you having that it, with your yes. situation that you were trying so, so hard to get some help. And they kept saying nothing has happened. Yeah, there, I was reporting anything until something happens. Right. Yeah, I was reporting myself um, over and over. I was asking the school to report. I was asking the pediatrician's office, the therapist, family therapy, my therapy, equine therapy. Everybody was reporting and DHS um, didn't want to get involved. There, there hadn't been an event. They said, you know, we had a roof over our head. We could provide for our child. Um, and my thing was, we are in crisis and I want you involved I want to be preactive before something horrific happens. Um, we were in crisis, but it wasn't enough of a crisis where they felt they needed to intervene. And my concern was the crisis that would have happened by the time they would have intervened would have either been that I wouldn't have been able to continue to regulate myself. In all honesty, I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to, to regulate myself or um, my child with RAD was a safety risk to herself. I could not keep her safe. Um, and my other children, I couldn't keep them safe from her behavior. So it, at one point it would have ended up that way if I didn't end up the route that we went. But yes, DHS involvement, that was crazy times for sure. And which makes me go have a thought too. back to the social isolation, you're you become accustomed to a certain level of crazy in your home and you don't realize that's not normal. And you'll like I will catch myself saying, oh, blah, 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 blah. And someone's eyes will get really big. And I'm like, oh, abort, abort. That's too much information. Like that doesn't happen in everyone's home, you know, or why do you have 19 cameras throughout the inside and outside of your home? Shut off the monitor when people are coming over, you know. So, again, 
having to ask for DHS involvement is not normal. And then it can go awry or they don't want to help because there hasn't been an event, like Amy said. And, and you, as a sane person, are trying to prevent the event instead of reacting after it's happened. Sometimes or often the removal of a child and put into a group home. Typically, you will hear worse. They learn worse behaviors in a group home, and it's true. They typically learn worse behaviors in a group home or they will go to a group home and get do better and come back home and the cycle will begin again, which goes right along with like the foster care reentry and the cycle repeated. So going into a group home or going back into foster care, some sort of disruption or relinquishment will continue to have the cycle repeated. Often we call it the pipeline to prison. We can see, we can watch our children and you just think they're gonna end up in prison. They're going to be in prison when they're adults. And, and it's their behaviors because they're risky and they're it's challenging and they just do things that aren't okay. And then they, they often do end up in prison as adults. The cycle of abuse continues. If they are having so much of an emotional struggle, what typically do people resort to? Substance abuse, uh, any kind of abuse. They don't know how to have a normal relationship. They get older, they might become domestically violent with a partner. They may become pregnant and have a child and not know how to care for that child. And this just continues this cycle. It's very, it's very much a generational cycle. And, and when you don't know how to care for a baby and you have a baby, when you weren't cared for properly, you don't know how to care for a baby properly, you pass that on to your child. And then finally, the, the PTSD and mental health issues for all other family members. It, I will always kind of chuckle that when before I adopted, we, I mean, I'm a little bit insane anyway, just naturally I'm hyper and whatnot. But my whole family has like alphabet soup diagnoses. And I'm thinking, wow, like, where did we all gather these PTSD diagnoses or anxiety, depression, things like that? And it just, it's how the disorder can affect the entire family. And it's kind of like how cancer can affect a person's entire body. It's really the equivalent when it comes to a disordered child, a dysregulated disorder. And systemically, there's a lot of failures. The university and educational systems fail on multiple levels. The Department of Human Services, they fail. Medicaid and private insurances have failures. Current therapy, therapeutic interventions don't work. We need to talk about, and we will talk about for each of these, we'll go through where the failures are and where things could go differently and how we could make them better. On the university and educational level, there's not training for therapists for RAD. It's not something that's taught. So training for therapists should begin at the university level. Training for social workers about RAD should begin at the university level. I have a social worker in my family, young lady, she's 26, and she is uh, my future daughter-in-law. So she was a part of our family now for about six, seven years, and she is a social worker. And in, high, in college, she sent me a little picture of the rad paragraph in her textbook was literally two sentences long that said it is rare most people don't have it and it was like she said oh my gosh if i didn't 
it wasn't a part of your family, I would just have skipped completely over this. We need to have the universities and the educational systems teaching on RAD. We also need to be able to teach our educators how to properly handle and, and have a child with RAD in their classroom. Most programs obviously don't give enough attention and, and give any adequate or enough attention to the very complex areas of this disorder because it isn't it isn't black and white because it's spectrum. You can't say if this child does this, then we do this. If they have this, there's a 20% chance they'll do this. It isn't cut and dry. So we need to be able to have systems that devote education to the complexity in the different ways this looks, this disorder looks in and outside of the home. And then implementing the education with our professionals so that they can learn to treat RAD and share their different and effective measure, measures for treating RAD. So to make progress, we have to be treating it and we have to do a good job treating it so that we can then share with others. So it just is like this convoluted, where do you start? And when you see through all these systems, it's what came first, the chicken or the egg. We really, where do you start? Which one do you start with? Because um, they sort of, they'll, they'll become very intertwined, you'll see. And Heather, this is, is Jody. I'm going to interrupt really quickly. Can you, we actually had a request to go back to the previous slide. So I guess at this point now it'd be two slides. Um, and okay. think back one more maybe. So just a reminder, everybody too, that these PowerPoint, this PowerPoint slide is in the handouts. So um, I'm not sure now which slide we're referencing, but. Um, forward one. The forward one. This one? I think so. That was Mario. Feel free to type in the chat if that's not the one you're looking for. Yeah. Anyway, um, go ahead and move on. <laughs> Thank you. I think they just wanted to see something different on there or see it still. Okay. Okay. Amy, are you going to talk about the Department of Human yeah. Services? So within our Department of Human Services, you know, when Heather's talking about, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, how do we really create change around this disorder? I think a big part of it is, first of all, we have to acknowledge that it's not rare, that we, we have an understanding that developmental trauma is happening. And it is really happening a lot within the Department of Human Services. And in some cases, um, the very makeup of the department can also cause this disorder. So when we've all probably fostered children that have been in 15, 20 homes, um, you know, when you get a kiddo in those early developmental years and they're having multiple placements, we understand that it needs to be for safety or a foster parent, you know, couldn't keep them for long-term or whatever, but that is also causing the disorder because there's multiple caregivers. We really need to find better ways to keep children with one specific caregiver during those developmental years. Um, I had worked with a therapist at one point who their philosophy was a child could potentially be better off with their bio parents who may be neglectful or abusive than having multiple caregivers. 
because that bond is still happening, even though it's not a healthy attachment. Um, but then working on, and obviously the department does this, it is about parent reform and trying to help, um, help parents have better skills, but that having those multiple caregivers and those breaks and those connections and attachments can be very damaging for that developing brain, developmental brain. Um, so also where if you think of it, where how often are we supposed to, when we're switching to another foster home, how we're supposed to have that transition period or that time frame of, of um, visits to see how the child does. A lot of times that doesn't happen and, and, and it just is set up the way the system is run where it's crucial, we need placement now. Um, but that really does damage to the children's attachment. Um, Amy, someone says, as a teacher, I can say we are taught nothing about RAD. Even right. now, in the trauma-informed professional right. developments we take, that we've had to take recently, nothing. Right. It, no, no. Um, but it's interesting because we do provide trainings to a lot of educators and to schooling. And when we get in, uh, for example, with like the... Um, the special needs department or, or even teachers, there's so many of them that are like, oh my gosh, we have two or three kids like that right now, or we know that. Uh, so yes, it is not being taught in schools or, or any of that. When we come in to do trainings, it's usually because a parent brings us in uh, to provide training to the school. So um, however, there was a district in Tennessee that, that did our training for the district. So that was pretty awesome. So we're hoping eventually to keep getting out there more and creating more awareness around this in the classroom. Uh, we have an educational committee and one of the members on our educational committee is a teacher and, uh, and she does a really good job of explaining actual implementation in the classroom around this disorder. Uh, but heading back to our Department of Human Services, there are not early assessments being done for our kiddos that are coming into care. You know, the first thing when a child comes into care, there really should be an assessment of, of where are they at with their trauma and then maybe be evaluated of what placement should look like. Um, some of these kiddos really require a higher level of care than just a foster home or a therapeutic foster home. You know, being able to look at that uh, because again, like we talked about with what does it look like for the home, if you're bringing a severely traumatized child into the home that maybe requires a higher level of intervention, um, but you don't know that because there was an assessment done, now you're bringing the kiddo in the home, you're exposing trauma to the other kids in the home, and then the child is removed from that placement again, we're just setting that child up for more failure because now they can't be placed. Uh, one thing that I always say is our foster care system really accommodates this disorder. Uh, what happens is, is and, and quite honestly, the child that I relinquished back into the system, this is why I believe she does well in the system is they, she can go into a nurturing, loving home. I mean, all you foster parents come in because 
you know, you have hearts of gold, you really want to help, you understand that children really are our future and that we need to, to step up and, and offer our homes if we can do that. And so the child comes in, you're nurturing, loving you, you bring them in and the disorder does fine, you know, that honeymoon phase, I'm sure you've all heard that, that's that phrase. So they come in and their honeymoon phase then once you start having more of an expectation of that child or more of an intimate connection, or if they see intimacy with others in the home, that can trigger this disorder. So children with RAD see love, see it on the movies, see it with you and your families, you with your other kids, you with your pets. They want that intimacy. They want that love. But what makes them disordered is they can't receive it. And so to them, it often looks like you don't love me. You're treating me different. You, you know, you don't love me and they, you hate me. You know, these are things they may say because to them, it feels like it's you as the caregiver that isn't doing it right for them. They don't understand that they can't receive what you're offering. So if they're seeing love in your home, with you and your spouse or you and your other children, that can be triggering to them because they feel like you're treating them different. Um, and so they will do fine in your home until there's that expectation of intimacy or connection, and then they're triggered. And as you all know, when a kiddo in our foster home has really big behaviors or we can't handle them anymore, it becomes a safety risk or a risk to the other children, we have to ask for them to be removed. Once the disorder is removed, placed into the next family, the cycle starts all over again. So I say that is how our system accommodates this disorder because these kiddos can bounce from home to home and we're never truly healing the foundation cause of the disorder, we're just keeping them safe. But there comes a point for some of these kids where safety has to be all that we look at um, because they may not be at a place in their life to receive that deep healing that needs to occur. Um, especially, you know, if it's pre-verbal trauma, any of that, they may not be able to heal that at these young ages, it may not be until their fully matured adult brain can then process it. So that's the other thing you need to assess is healing the disorder or keeping the disorder safe. Um, in my case, I feel like um, when we relinquished our parental rights back to the county, um, it's keeping our child safe. I don't know that it's healing her disorder, but it but at least she's safe, but I don't know. I'm, I haven't had any contacts. Well, and I think that's why sometimes children with RAD actually thrive in residential, right? Because Absolutely. there and is we do no, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. There's Cause there's no yeah. expectation. There's routine, right. everything. Mm -hmm. they, they can predict what's coming up. Right. Um, quick question in the chat. What professional then can diagnose your child? How, how do you know you're getting a real RAD diagnosis? You need to find somebody that has a clear understanding of that early developmental trauma and takes that into account when they're assessing. So often our kiddos are getting psyche valves and stuff, but they're missing that early developmental piece. They're just, uh, or they are, 
Another big piece is they are not taking the reporting of the caregiver, they're taking the reporting of the child. Um, and a, a child with RAD is not gonna accurately report on how they are feeling because their brain is disordered. So there really needs to be um, involvement of the caregiver in reporting for that assessment. So can they heal? And what does healing look like? Maybe I'm yes. jumping ahead. Yes, they can. <laughs> yes, they can, which is, you know, we'll get there. Okay. Um, and then the other, obviously, prospective foster adoptive families are not consistently made aware of the mental health history. We see this so many times, you know, the books that are supposed to come with our kiddos don't have the full history of what they've been through, um, or sometimes things are dropped. You know, it's just part of how our world is within our welfare system. Um, and then we have our Medicaid and private insurance. Our insurances are set up that, um, you know, you have to go through this whole specific protocol to get help and to get resources. We're always looking at least restrictive level of care. If any of you have had any, um, any involvement with Medicaid or kiddos in residential treatment centers or whatever, you're gonna understand that least restrictive level of care. Um, absolutely, we need least restrictive level of care, but for children with reactive attachment disorder, when they are out of the home, they are going to present very differently than they are in the home. In my specific case, every time I was going for that Medicaid assessment, trying to get a higher level of care, I'm reporting to our therapist. The therapists are quite concerned with what they are hearing of my reporting at home, of how our behaviors are escalating and the safety levels, and they feel that I am implementing all the therapeutic um, interventions that I had been taught and what they were recommending we do in the home, but it was no longer working. It was becoming to a higher level of care. So when Medicaid would assess her, the problem is, again, the disorder kind of morphs to whoever they're around for their survival. That's, that's what they learn to do. You're a new person that new person isn't having an expectation of intimacy in that moment. The disorder is looking for a service or a good. So how do I put on my survival skill, my front to get through this? So she was never meeting that higher level of care for the residential treatment center, um, which made it very difficult of getting help. Um, and then so then we go on this cycle of then they can get into a higher level of care, but then once they're removed from that intimate setting, most of the time their behaviors will calm, their brain has a better felt sense of safety because now they're in an environment where typically there's more chaos. Um, I remember visiting my daughter one time at an RTC and I was a little shaken and a little kind of nervous being in there because there was a lot of kiddos coming in with some pretty significant behaviors. Sometimes police were bringing them in and handcuffs and they're screaming and yelling and cursing. And, you know, I'm kind of like, okay, are we, what's going on here? And it was shocking to me that an 11 year old was just completely calm in that environment, but that's what her brain had developed in. And that's what felt safe to her because that's what she had developed in. So I think in that environment, she felt safer than in 
our home environment where it was calm. Um, that's also why in the calm home environment, often they will have to create chaos to help them feel more comfortable of what they are used to. Uh, so yes, the RTCs, they often feel safer there and, and nobody's expecting um, intimacy from them. And then also rad specific treatments do not come. Medicaid do not, does not pay. Private insurances don't pay for RAD specific treatment options. They just don't fall in the category. RAD does not fall in a category that something insurance covers. So usually um, the billable diagnosis is going to be something else. Um, you know, DMDD, something like that. It's not going to be under RAD. Then we look at how our current therapeutic interventions are, right? Uh, evaluations, they're using, like I said earlier, they're using the disorder child's evaluations, right? I, I feel calm right now. I don't feel dysregulated. Um, it will be more accurate if, they are, if they're getting all the caregivers input on what, what they are seeing at home. In individual therapy, the disorder will mimic what the therapist wants to hear. Again, our kiddos are like chameleons. They are, they're looking at the therapist for their survival skill. They are reading their body language. They are skilled at this. They, are, they learned it at a very early age for their survival, their protection. So they can see what the therapist is kind of leading them to, right? Therapists lead us into our feelings and our emotions and how to process all of that. And the disorder knows how to kind of mimic what the therapist wants. In RAD-specific therapy, it looks very different. Usually therapists are able just to kind of go um, cold, not show any of their emotions, and try to see what genuine emotions they can find with children. They usually will start with very basic needs in therapy of identifying happy, sad, mad, or glad. A lot of times these kiddos don't even know those basic emotions because again, they didn't have that caregiver in that early attachment cycle to bounce those emotions back and forth of and to soothe. So the very need of, I feel happy, I feel sad, I feel angry. They don't know how they feel. Um, if you can genuinely get them in a, in a, in an environment where everybody's not projecting how they feel, right? You know, if you're happy, people can tell you're happy. Uh, the rad child will say, yeah, I'm happy. Uh, if you're angry, the rad child's gonna be angry. So that's also part of what's important to learn as a caregiver is how to regulate your own emotions because that's also what the disorder is going to mimic. Um, it, a rad therapist or the, when we're talking about therapeutic, therapeutic interventions, the other thing important to know, and this kind of goes into the home therapy part, is that as the primary caregiver, you are the trigger. And so when you are trying to help de-escalate a child who is triggered, it may not work if you are the intimate caregiver. So in my situation, the more my child was becoming dysregulated, and the more I would try to help her de-escalate and calm her down, the more it triggered her because she knew it was coming from an act of caring, love, and intimacy. Um, and that's what she was reacting to. She couldn't handle that. 
again, that's why when somebody from the outside comes in, they can turn it off very quickly. Um, and so sometimes we need to know how to regulate ourselves as parents, but we also need to know therapeutically when to get outside intervention to help uh, in the home because it's too much of a trigger. So in-home therapy, again, they're never going to see the behaviors that you see in the home to work on them because you're bringing an outsider in. They would have to live in the home probably for quite a while for the in-home therapist to see the behaviors that you're seeing. Um, the in-home therapist often comes in and uh, gives the parents uh, therapeutic advice in front of the child, um, will explain, let's try this. Then it makes it look as though as that in-home therapist is in charge. And then it's telling the disordered child that my parents can't keep me safe. And so there's a whole lot of specific therapy that needs to happen with somebody who is educated on RAD, they're going to understand that, that it's usually counterintuitive to what we, what we believe, what feels instinctual to us as um, attached neurotypical people, it's going to be counterintuitive. And then we have our higher level of care. Most of our RTCs, um, all of those higher level of cares, they are reward-based. That is supporting their relationships built on a service or good, not intimacy. There is no attachment or nurturing expectations there. The, ch the children appears completely regulated in those environments. So they no longer meet the level of care. They are returned back to the home setting. And then in the home setting, the disorder kicks in ups the behavior that got them out of the home in the first place uh, because the disorder cannot handle the home, which then takes us to the next slide that shows where um, this, is, this is what we see all the time in the families that we are working with as advocates is, you know, pick, pick any part on this circle of where your kiddo is at when they come to you and this just goes in circles over and over uh, because we're not properly treating this disorder and we're not properly treating it because a lot of people don't truly understand it from the home perspective. So we start with traditional therapy. Well, traditional therapy isn't effective for these kiddos, uh, mainly because they're looking for that relationship for a service or a good. They're gonna just say how they feel. Um, based on what they think the therapist wants them to say. And then if, if that's not working and if you're somewhere in the chain that you can get in-home therapy to come in, again, you have an in-home therapist coming in, usually is giving advice to the parents, which sets them up that they look like they're in control, which reinforces to the child that the parents can't keep them safe. Um, the child will oftentimes act completely fine. The, the in-home therapist will never see the behaviors in the home. So it's really hard for them to identify the actual um, a thing that needs to be worked on in the in-home therapy. Uh, if that escalates, then that will maybe get them into uh, an emergency room hold or a hospitalization. They, again, no expectations there for intimacy. They can calm, their brain has a better felt sense of safety in the hospital. Uh, then they can step down to an RTC. 
And then in the RTC, they go right back to traditional therapy and it just keeps continuing until we really get some understanding in there around RAD. There's a lot of people who want to help with RAD. You can go ahead, Heather. Uh, very well-meaning professionals, some great RTCs that really want to help, but the problem is, is it needs to be a team approach to bring a felt sense of safety around the disorder. And, uh, and without everybody being educated on it, that just can't happen. Uh, the disorder will find a, an angle through and um, can manipulate, triangulate, and and then the disorder is just spiraling out of control. Uh, these are things that are RAD is commonly misdiagnosed as, or the child will have RAD as well as these. These are also more of the diagnosis that we see that they will have inside residential treatment centers and stuff because that is billable. Um, when we change diagnosis to be able to treat billable things, again, we're not really addressing the issue. So if RAD is the underlying issue, if you have a kiddo that had RAD is the underlying issue in that earlier developmental stage, right? And then we're treating anxiety disorders. Well, we're always treating anxiety disorders, but that anxiety is coming from, I never formed attachment. I never learned to trust. I have anxiety. So we're always treating anxiety, but we're not going to the bottom looking at RAD. And so it's really important that we do start identifying RAD and we start creating awareness around it, that it is not rare and calling it out. We feel that a lot of um, entities don't like to call it RAD. Um, and they say that it is rare because it is very overwhelming when we don't know how to fix it, when we yes, don't know yeah. how to help children. And it feels very much like a label that they can't heal from. With families we have worked with that have been able to uh, get into rat specific facilities or treatment, there has been healing. Um, we do see kids heal from this. Part of it is again, we have to have the communication around it first and we have to acknowledge that it could potentially be real. Um, and, and that it's not rare. We're hoping to get there. We're seeing improvements. So we'll see. Uh, we're hoping that more universities will teach about it and, uh, and that our systems will start to acknowledge it. So, so Amy, there is some overlap with other diagnoses. Um, someone saying absolutely. any overlap with fetal alcohol and ADHD, for example. Yeah. Oh yeah. So absolutely. I mean, so a kiddo with fetal alcohol syndrome that tells you that bio mom was self-medicating in pregnancy, right? So that cortisol stress hormone was probably going to the baby. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, yeah. I mean, a lot of them can, they can have definitely dual diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, RAD is a childhood disorder. So at 18, it is no longer rad. It usually becomes some sort of personality disorder. Okay, here's another, here's a follow-up question. Someone says, I have a kiddo who came to me at age nine and had already had three hospitalizations. For a few months, she found many excuses as to why she needed to go back there. 
I recognized this as a safe escape for her, but didn't want to foster that as a safe place. I've been able to keep her from inpatient care, and she's been with us for a little over a year. Is RAD usually acting out against others, or can it present as purely self-destruction? It can, yes, it can be both. It could be both. The acting out towards others, um, it just depends. Well, first of all, it depends on what their triggers are. And so it, everybody parents differently. And um, a lot of kids will act out to self instead of others if they can find a release. So if she had already been hospitalized and if, if she does have RAD, like you, like you were able to identify the hospital felt safe for her, but she could still internalize all that attachment and all that connection is something wrong with her and self-harm or, you know, it, it doesn't have to always be acting out to, towards others. I know I had worked with one of our members, their child would just self-isolate to her room all the time and do those maladaptive behaviors. She would headbang, she would rock, she would nail bite. Um, she was never aggressive with the family, uh, but then when working with the therapist of, can you, you know, part of the coping skills or a way to help regulate, can you go to mom and let mom know when you're upset or uncomfortable? And that's what the therapist was working with the family on. And this poor child, as soon as she would get around her mom, she would projectile vomit every single time um, because she just felt so anxious of letting somebody in to help her. So she would prefer to isolate to her room and um, self-harm and do those maladaptive behaviors. So feel free to put any other questions in the comments. Um, while that's happening, will you tell us a little bit about what RAD Advocates does? Sure. So what we do with RAD Advocates is we support caregivers who are raising children with reactive attachment disorder. And that can look different to every family because we really try to come on and support each family of where they are at in the moment. We have several different memberships. Um, one of our memberships is just like a, a basic yearly membership where uh, you'll receive some information about RAD. Uh, we've developed a workbook, things like that, and you'll learn uh, just about the disorder, but more on a, a self-taught pace where you kind of get the materials and you get blog posts and you get discounts to our conference, things like that. But it's more to self-taught pace. And then our memberships kind of uh, become more interactive from there. We have a mentor membership where you would get an advocate to kind of help guide you through navigating some of the systems, but it's more on a through like a through emails, answering questions, um, helping to go through our workbook. We developed a workbook um, that is navigating reactive attachment disorder because it is a very complex disorder and there's so much to navigate. So on the mentorship membership, we help you work through the workbook and navigate that way. And then we have more of a custom advocacy membership and that is where you're going to get one-on-one -on -one support. That is more for families who find themselves in complete crisis, where the kids are on that merry-go-round cycle, hospital, RTC, home. Um, 
we're going to come in, we're going to be a part of the team discussing how do we how do we break the cycle for the family? How do we break the cycle for the child? How do we get true help? How do we bring safety? Um, we participate in any meetings that may be having with Medicaid, uh, with Department of Human Services, with residential treatment centers. We're a part of the team. We help to identify what are your goals for the child and goals for the family and how do we get you there. We a lot of what we do is really learning how to navigate the system, figuring out how to find the loopholes, how do we get treatment covered? Um, how do you, <laughs> uh, how, the, the best thing I can say is if you find yourself in a situation where you're having to talk to a team of people around reactive attachment disorder, it can be really hard to explain as a parent because a lot of times coming from you as a parent, you're exhausted and it looks still like a parenting issue. By having an advocate, we can say the same thing that you are saying, but it's being seen differently from the professionals because we're able to explain it from a different angle. Uh, if that makes any, any I mean, sense. I Until just you imagine if you would have had that. Oh, I wish I would have had it. I know. I know. <laughs> I wish I would have had That would have been a game changer. Um, I mean, yes, but I made... did have, I did have a couple of really amazing therapists that didn't necessarily understand reactive attachment yeah. disorder, but believed me mm -hmm. and was willing to advocate of, I believe this mom knows what her child needs. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's, that's a big thing that we're missing right now with mental health is, you know, when our kiddos are sick and we take them to the doctor or to the ER for a physical ailment, they always listen to the parents, you know, yeah, they had a fever yesterday. Mm -hmm. They've been coughing. Mm -hmm. They listen to the parents when it becomes mental health. And we're saying our child isn't regulated. They, this, 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 they just look at you like whatever. And they immediately go to the child. How do you feel? And if the child says, I feel fine, then it's, Okay. Yeah. They're fine. Yeah. Then again, it's, so we need it's, to listen to caregivers. Well, someone says I've come to suspect that many of the teen girls I have fostered may have had undiagnosed rad. Is there still hope for them to learn how to have healthy relationships? I think there's always hope for people always. And I think a lot of that really comes for when they're an adult. So nobody can heal without a felt sense of safety, nobody. And so we know those kiddos are safe in your home, but they may not feel safe just because they're being bounced around or, you know, maybe they really can't believe that you're going to be there forever, you know, and that's, that's kind of where this other thing I want to just bring up real quick is there's this false sense that just don't give up on them. Love heals, you know, permanency heals. That's not the case, right? They have to have a felt sense of safety. And so that we don't get to determine what their felt sense of safety is. So maybe those teenage girls will heal when they get older. Um, we, we also have another program where we work with grow to go membership and we work with 17 year olds transitioning to 18, transitioning to adulthood. And I'm hopeful that a lot of those kids that we work with when they get into adulthood and they feel safe, whatever that looks like to them, that then they will maybe do some of that therapeutic work. We don't get to dictate what makes people feel safe. Um, 
I will say some of the, the older kids that we work with, a lot of them just want to be out of the system. They want to grow up. They want to be, they want to party. They want yeah. to go live with their friends and I'm going to party and whatever. But the reality is, is when they have that, they may feel safe and they may start to look at hmm, some of these choices I'm choosing aren't really in my best interest. So I always hold out hope for everybody, uh, but I think we need to start looking at how do we support kiddos a little bit differently and start to see things from different angles and, um, yeah. and offer them that support uh, for those teenage girls that struggle and they bounce home to home. We often will say, have a trans business transactional relationship with yeah. them. Yeah. They can handle that a lot easier than they can uh, an intimate relationship. So what would you say to this parent? They say, I have an extreme version where my foster daughter can't be relaxed with anyone. It's at the point where the RTCs won't accept her. And she was on kid probation, but didn't do any of the required work. So they just dropped her case. I'm a single mom. So I'm the trigger, the nurturing enemy, as we all know, and the only one trying to fight for her. Have you Mm -hmm. seen kids like this either become less extreme or be able to have attachments later? I feel like that's the common theme here with our, our foster parents is we're, we're, we want to hope. And you just said there is hope. What what would you tell this mom? Well, I think part of what's happening again is by that point, when you have the RTCs and all, you know, juvenile probation, all these people involved, again, it has to be a team approach. And when it's not a team approach, there's loop, there's that, that hole for the disorder to get through. So, um, My hope is one day that everybody will have an understanding of the disorder so everybody can be on the same page. But as you know, with these kiddos, there's so many people involved. You got CASA, guardian alitems, and probation officers, and therapists, and foster parents. And if everybody has a different understanding of the disorder or what the child's going through, I don't know how to say this other than just to say it. A lot of times, we sugarcoat things for these kids and we, we want to cushion it for them. And that's what they're reacting to. They can't handle that. And if you can just give them very concrete black or white, and then follow through with that, a lot of times that's what they need. And they could be more successful with that. The reason why they're go ahead, Heather, you, you speak on that. You do a good job. <laughs> I was, I was gonna say, in remembering the toddler brain within that body, um, yes. remembering that stuff coming at them is being filtered through a toddler brain. So, I remember my son at seventeen was calling his therapist complaining because mom and dad expected him to keep his room clean and he was working and it was so tough and the therapist who was rad specific i was so mad at her because she was like oh buddy that's tough and i thought what do you mean that's tough like keep your room clean that's ridiculous and she said heather it's the six-year-old trying to figure out how to work and keep his room clean give him a minute just give it a minute and it'll all come together and it and it did it was like he needed to feel validated by her that this feels tough but then as soon as he got the validation it's like for us as rad parents 
when when you meet somebody who understands what you're going through all of a sudden you can you feel so much more free to to try new things or to express yourself and so then suddenly i'm not going to tell you he kept his room clean very well but he wasn't complaining of that anymore because someone had acknowledged that this is tough but then turned around and said but you're 17 and this is something you should be able to do and so it helped marry those two ages enough that he was able to kind of grow a little bit and when i work with families where kids are older i will say things like remember when they were toddlers and they were going to get milk for their lunch and they wanted soda or juice and they're not getting that so what do we do do you want the red cup or the blue cup i would say like we're having milk today do you want it in your red cup or your blue cup they pick a cup the whole focus is on something else it's the cup they were given an option, they feel empowered, and suddenly they feel different, but we didn't give them, do you do you wanna go out and smoke pot or do you wanna stay home and have dinner with the family? Like we gave the children only two healthy options to choose from. So when no one else, I think the, the thing is for that situation when everyone's kind of just thrown their hands up, sometimes the natural consequences have to be experienced by the child. and not doing it all for them. And we find a lot of times when the kids are involved with all these different entities and systems, they give them mentors and they do this and people plan how to do this. And even, I even watched my own, my own husband, like I showed him how to budget and I gave him his budget and I told him what to do. do, 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 And our son will sit there and say, yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. And then not do it. And my husband will get so frustrated. And I'm like, but you did all the work for him. Instead, we try to ask, like, even now, I will say, like, what did you think would be the end result of that? When he makes a terrible decision or, or not wise decision, I will like, what did you what what did you think would be the end result? Because if that decision was filtered through a smaller person brain, he might not remember all the data. Like as an adult, we know if you drink and drive, you could get pulled over, you could kill someone, you could, you know, all these things. But what did you think was going to happen from that? Because they don't have those older version, those older experiences to go off of, but they're definitely not going to listen to you as the parent. So trying to marry all that together and then get professionals to let them have those natural consequences. Which is hard because we're kind of in this time right now where we want to solve it for them. And, um, and so a lot of it comes back to, of, well, where do you want to be placed? Maybe you won't have these behaviors if we let you tell us where you want to go. Right. Well, that's like asking a toddler, where do you want to live? Right. You know, they want to live at Disneyland. Uh, these teenagers are going to want to live with their drug um, yeah. dealers. So, so we can't give them that, that much freedom. Safety comes when they're in a structured environment where everybody is bringing that structure. And so that's where that team approach really is important, but it's, a it's gotta be that structure where you're giving them choices and empowering them, but you're not giving them too much information where they are going to choose the bad choice. Like when you go to and, the dentist. And that's why they like the RTCs and juvenile detention because there's less choices there. Because when you go to the dentist and it's like, oh, come back in six months. When do you want to come back? Oh my gosh. I'm like, I don't know. Just tell me this is the date that would yeah. be six months, you want morning or afternoon. You know, we, even as it's neurotypical adults can only choose from so many options. It's just too much. So if we just go, what do you want? You know, the world is your oyster. You're never going to pick the greatest thing that's out there because you don't even know what that is. 
Right. This is interesting. This parent who's got two boys with rad said that he, he's found that healing comes in finding that quote, I'll say quote unquote love that feels safe. Right. And that today's training has helped with the wording for him with the fact that that type of quote unquote love is actually a transactional relationship, like you said. Um, and then you can kind of slowly baby step towards what you feel like is love versus what the child is feeling as right. love. Right. Exactly. And then, and then someone asked, do you recommend the book, the explosive child? Are those principles sound for kids with rad or are there book other books you recommend? We actually have a post right now um, on our Facebook page where parents have been putting in um, re recommendations that they have. I don't, I read a lot of books. I don't recall The Explosive Child. Depending on what you want, what you're trying to achieve as far as what knowledge you're trying to uh, gain. One of the ones that right now I think is amazing is Dr. Perry's book called What Happened to You? I think it was written with Oprah Winfrey. Yes, with Oprah. But what happened to you, some of the examples, it's not one of those books you're just going to read right through really quick. You're, it, it's pretty heavy, but a lot of the information there has shown me again and again that their bodies, another book of his is the body, or Dr. Vandalkulk, who wrote The Body, body keeps, keeps the Score. Yeah. So yeah. how a scent, you know, uh, just a smell of Old Spice deodorant mm -hmm. could trigger a child if their abuser wore that deodorant you know, or, or had that scent and where we might smell something and, oh, my grandma used to make these pot, you know, pineapple cookies and we have this warm and fuzzy feeling. If their abuser made those pineapple cookies, that wouldn't be the same warm and fuzzy. Uh, but we do have a, on our Facebook page, we do, there is a post right now on. Um, helpful books. Helpful yeah. books. And then I think even in our, uh, on our website, there is a list of resources and trying to again, it's going to depend on where your child is at on the spectrum. You know, right. the connected child, um, that was a pretty good book, but for a child who's on the more mild end of the spectrum, um, for sure. You guys don't have, and by the way, there's a space between the R and the A and the D and on Facebook to find on Facebook, these folks, yes. um, you found what you call the underground world of rad when you were looking for help. How do people find that if they're looking to find other parents? The underground world of rad. <laughs> you go to the underground world of rad and then there will be, you know, questions and stuff that you have to answer. Um, again, you know, there's all kinds of social media sites um, where parents are supporting each other and asking for help. A lot of them know you will have to answer questions uh, because they are private groups. Okay, since we're close to time, we're, I'm gonna have, if you don't mind stopping your share, Heather, I'm gonna have Anna from my team walk everyone through finding their certificate. And then maybe if you guys don't mind just hanging on a couple more minutes and seeing if there's any sure. more questions, that would be great. Thank you guys so, so much for all of this information. Anna, take it away. Morning, everyone. All right. Here is our verification code for today. It is SPRING with a capital S. 
So capital S P R I N G. And someone from our team will be posting that in the chat for everyone. So when we log off today, you should see this screen. This is where you logged on this morning. You'll come down to the verification code. We'll type in spring with a capital S, submit verification code. And then you'll be asked to fill out our survey. We really, really appreciate it when you fill out these surveys and when you take the time to give us your feedback, we use this. When we create trainings, we also send um, the feedback that you give us to our presenters, obviously anonymously, so feel free to be honest. I'm gonna go ahead and just put NA for all of these. If you're new to Foster Source, feel free to put NA for anything that doesn't apply. And down here, this is the question that you can provide feedback for our instructors. We love that. It helps us make trainings better in the future. We'll click finish. Can you show again where you enter the code, Anna? Someone's asking. Yes. One second. My computer's taking its time. There we go. Yes, for the verification code, it's right under webinar, it says verification code. You'll enter it on the side and click okay. Then you take the survey and then you have the certificate. Please make sure you click view slash print certificate. That will open in a new window. It'll show you your certificate, but this is also what makes it so that you can access the certificate in the future. You'll go to your dashboard on the left-hand side so that's what I was talking about earlier about the certificate saying live versus on demand. If you do that today or in the next few days, it's going to say that you watched live. Mm -hmm. And then when you come to your transcript, you'll be able to see all the certificates that you have from classes previous. And we see the one for today. If you're watching with someone this morning, please email us at learning at fostersource.org so that we can get both of you registered for the class so that you both can get a separate certificate with your own name on it. And you can email learning at fostersource.org. That goes to Anna and she knows this classroom better than any of us. And so she will help you <laughs> any way that you need help. Thank you, Anna. Yes. I was gonna read a comment that somebody had entered. Oh, somebody was asking, do you know if there's a link as far or a study that looks at the child's IQ and how RAD played out in their life? Um, I don't know of any studies of that yet, but I do know, um, oh, I don't, I don't know the link. There has been some articles done about um, low IQ, pre, you know, nonverbal things like that in RAD. Um, but I don't know, there's been articles written, but I don't know if there's been like specific studies of knowing percentages or anything like that done yet. Interesting. Since we're right but at I time. I say we see kiddos all over the really? IQ spectrum with that. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Thank you guys so much for teaching today. This is always so helpful.